Hey there, dive buddies, and welcome to the show. Rather embarrassingly, I have to admit that I didn't have a clue about my next guest until two days ago. When scrolling through some YouTube footage, I came across an episode of Well Wars entitled From Pirate to Prisoner. Now, I've got to point out, in the last eight years, I've spent about two-thirds of that living on islands and remote locations, so forgive me for being separated from real life. And that's my excuse. Nevertheless, I started to watch this episode and was simply amazed to see this geezer not only get rammed by a whaling vessel and watch his own boat go down, but then decide to take action in the most extraordinary way. As soon as that episode finished, I messaged him, hoping to get him on the show, and here he is, two days later, talking to me. Pete Bethune, I take the greatest of pleasures in welcoming you to the show. How the devil are you, you crazy man? I'm doing all right, mate. It's good to be with you. <laughs> and just to clarify for those that are listening, um, you're now you, you, you're on or off the coast of Costa Rica? Yeah, I've got a ship in Costa Rica, and we, we help the government here uh, protect the national parks, and we do work in the jungle and, and a bit of work offshore and protecting fisheries and stuff. So we are busy boys at the moment. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, that, that message that we started earlier this week, and um, you're like, yeah, yeah, I'll come on the show. Okay, cool. Uh, when do you want to do it? Well, um, we're going into the jungle in, in a few days, so, you know, it's either now or, you know, sometime in the future. What the hell are you doing with fisheries in the jungle? Uh, oh, we kind of split our time here. So the, our agreement with the government is we support uh, any of the national parks and we've got a, an anti-poaching dog which can track people in the jungle and hold people in the jungle. We provide that and a few lads to go and help on jungle patrols and that's trying to stop illegal logging uh, and especially illegal gold mining and a little bit of poaching. And then we also support them offshore and then in particular areas where we, we provide a Zodiac, a rib, I've got a 45-metre ship, which is our sort of base of operations, uh, and a $4 million Shebel military drone that we we fly for surveillance. So we kind of split split our time half in the jungle, half on shore. And every now and then, like this week, we're back in the in harbour doing maintenance. So you were lucky to catch me this week, mate. <laughs> it looks like I've been whipping through your um, website and looking at all this stuff that you're doing. It's It's mental. It's absolutely mental. It's like, it's like a, a, a military operation. Yeah, mental's relative, mate. I, <laughs> um, I don't see it as mental. I look at people doing a nine-to-five job, and, and I think that is crazy. Like, I, you know, I have lived the dream over the last sort of 10 or 12 years, and I'm, I'm very lucky to be where I am. Um, and it, it doesn't come easy. Like, you sacrifice <laughs> a few things to, to pursue, and especially conservation. Yeah. You know, conservation is... It's always hard to make ends meet, you know. And uh, but I'm very blessed to be here. And I think, I think people living in in Sydney doing nine to five, maybe doing a rainy job. I think you guys are the crazy ones. Yeah, yeah. No, I'd agree with that. I well, you're a bit out there though. I, re- I did a bit of digging on you. You're a bit out there too, mate. So <laughs> I think you know where I'm coming from. <laughs> yeah, we got the same haircut and the same mindset. I think. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So take us back then. Um, it started, or did the conservation come from um, Earth Race to start with? Yeah, look, I'm I'm an unlikely conservationist. When I left uni, I got a job in the oil industry, and I worked in the Middle East and the North Sea and North Africa. And in those days, no one had really heard of environmental science or conservation. It just wasn't on anyone's radar. And then many years ago, I was in Sydney doing an MBA at Macquarie, and the opportunity came up to finish the degree with a 20,000-word paper, which initially I thought was easier than sitting the three papers it was in exchange <laughs> of. 
at 20,000 words later, I kind of became a convert to biodiesel uh, as, a, as not a not a total solution for transport fuels, but as a, a, a route towards sustainability. Mm. And so I decided I'm going to do something to promote biodiesel. So I built this very cool boat called Earth Race. We fueled it on biodiesel made entirely from waste cooking oils. And we set a record for a power boat to circle the globe. Went round in, in a little under 61 days. And that kind of opened my my eyes to marine conservation. And I spent four years on the sea and and started to see some issues that were quite alarming for me. Mm. Um, and towards the end of the time on that ship, I was wondering what I was going to do next. I still had a big debt hanging over my head. The, 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 I'd mortgaged my house and sold my forestry block, and my loving wife was was very forgiving of all that. Um, but it's funny, when, once you get to work on stuff you believe in, it's very hard to, to backtrack and go back to selling washing machines or, or doing something like that. And, and after that, I, I had this real dilemma. What am I going to do now? And I decided to have a crack at marine conservation, and that led to a, a sort of a one-year marriage to Sea Shepherd where I, I went down to Antarctica and, and we, we battled the, the naughty Japanese whalers who were, who were chasing whales in those days in New Zealand and Australia's backyard. And yeah. uh, I, I look back on that time in, in some ways very fondly, like like Antarctica was a dream come true for a, a guy like me to go down there um, and to be, you know, not, not simply looking at these amazing places, but to be doing something that I believe was really constructive in terms of disrupting the Japanese whaling program. And then partway through the campaign, um, in, in what became a relatively historic event, my boat was run over by the Shonen Maru number two, which was the security vessel. So it, it, it kind of took the front off the boat. And, and then after a, a few more shenanigans, um, I managed to board that security boat in the middle of the night off a jet ski. And I presented the captain the following morning. I had it on a ship all night. And then the following morning, <laughs> I wandered up to the bridge and I presented him with a bill for $3 million to replace the boat that he had destroyed. <laughs> um, and then I remember, I remember the captain, he came out and he kind of, he sort of looked at me and he didn't know I'd boarded in the middle of the night. He thought I just jumped off a helicopter. He's trying to figure out how I got on a ship. You can see him looking for a boat, and, eh? Oh, yeah, mate. He, he didn't know what was going on. And then afterwards, he, he popped back inside the, the bridge and, and the door was just slightly ajar as he went in and I slid in behind him and talk about a party you haven't been invited to, eh? <laughs> um, anyway, after that, they, so I went back to Japan as a prisoner, which was kind of the goal all along and it really put whaling on the map in Japan. Um, and it was the first time the Japanese really started debating whaling as an issue. And the, the conclusion of most people was that, look, whaling is a nationalistic sort of activity and we support it. But um, during that year, whale consumption in Japan dropped 30%. And it was the first time they really heard from foreigners that it was pissing us off. And especially Kiwis and Aussies, mate. Like, I was quite dark about it. And, you know, I'm normally a relatively peaceful bloke. And the Japanese whaling was sneaking past our two countries and whaling and what I thought of as our backyard was was a little bit upsetting for me. And, um, and in many ways, that period became historic in the anti-whaling um sort of uh, movement um, partway through my jail sentence and, and jail there was tough. I was in a maximum security halfway through my time there. Australia's government announced court action against Japan and in, in the International Court of Justice in The Hague. And I remember this journalist turning up and I burst into tears and I, I sort of kind of knew that that was what it was going to take to stop whaling. 
Um, and it took four years for the case to reach its fruition. It cost New Zealand Australian government something like $80 million to take the court case, and Japan lost. And then it was a few more years before Japan finally withdrew from Antarctica with their tail between their legs. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm very proud of the role that I played and, and also that, that Sea Shepherd and Greenpeace and WWF and, and many organisations all sort of worked in their own kind of way to highlight that issue, to run protests. And, you know, sometimes our governments, they need to kick up the ass to go and do something. And and in many ways, the, the loss of the boat, the very successful show, show Whale Wars and Mayan Car Association in Japan sort of pushed the public opinion to reach a tipping point where the Aussie government was finally like, oh, fuck this, mate, we, we better go and do something. <laughs> and it's a great demonstration that, that, you know, a lot of people think that protesting and, and activism and stuff doesn't work. It doesn't have a role to play, and it's it's not the, the solution to everything. Mm. But sometimes, very occasionally, it does actually work. Yeah. The thing that I find amazing in this whole scenario is that, once you're in Japan, you're, you're arrested, you're put into prison, you're looked at like a, a terrorist, yet there's nothing said about the dude who clearly, on the video, veers his um, vessel through a ridiculous amount of degrees to make it blatantly obvious that he's just intent on ramming you when you're sitting dormant in the yeah. water. Yeah. There was a really interesting conversation I had with um, the first officer on the Shona Mark. So I had 30 days on their boat. And, of course, they, you know, it's an embarrassment for the for the security ship to be boarded in the middle of the night and some <laughs> some white-faced turkey running around a ship all night and them not knowing. So it, they weren't ex- entirely friendly towards me, but give them credit, they were certainly professional. Anyway, the, the first officer on one of the days, I said, why did you guys run me over? And he basically said that they thought a little bit of damage to my ship would be okay. And and in, in many ways, I think they probably, they I don't think they really wanted to go destroying the ship. I yeah. think they wanted to do a small amount of damage. But with the, down there, those it was big swell and, and the boat kind of rolled over these three successive swells. Mm. And the and the Shonamari, those boats are an engineering marvel. Like they do, they can do 23 knots. This is a 70-metre boat, and they can turn on a dime. They, they are truly feats of engineering. And I think the boat turned a little bit quicker than the captain <laughs> might have been expecting. And in terms of maritime law, we're in the right. Like, we are, we're basically stationed. I think we were doing three or four knots underway yeah. just to maintain a heading because we, we were low on fuel, having to wait to be refueled. Mm. And the Shonamari was the overtaking vessel, and then as they kind of overtook us, they became the port side vessels. Under, under both scenarios, they had to give way. Mm. Um, but then there's, a, there's another little law that says as, a, as the, the uh, captain of a vessel, if you see a close quarter situation, regardless of whether you have right of way or not, you're supposed to um, do everything you can to get out of the collision. And so there was a Maritime New Zealand report that came in and they laid a bit of blame at my foot and, they, <laughs> and you know, I accepted, you know, like we were down there, we did all sorts of shenanigans disrupting their whaling and it was high risk. Yeah. On the one day we weren't doing anything naughty and they come and run us over. <laughs> <laughs> I- funny looking back on it though, I reckon it, it ended up being a pivotal day in the in the anti-whaling sort of movement, like it, it galvanised a lot of public opinion, and I suspect if if my ship hadn't been run over, I suspect Japan would still be whaling in Antarctica, mm. um, because it really did, we needed the Australian government to front up, and and you know back in those days, boys, your government had a bit of backbone. I don't know what's happening these days. <laughs> <though>. <laughs>
I'm, I'm with you, man. Uh, it, completely right. If you hadn't been hit as aggressively as that, I, I, it would have been a, a near miss story, and that's about it. Mm. Yeah. And an interesting thing, I, I, uh, I was listening to a, a podcast almost as auspicious as your one a while back, and the guy was sort of explaining that um, the general public ha- only has a conscience for about six or seven major issues. Mm. And historically, that's the case. These days, it's a lot more. Um, like there's a lot more demographics that within their own bubbles. And if you're, you know, let's say you're a Republican voter in America, you know, you care about abortion and gun rights and um, war in Iraq and various other things. But, but the, what, what happens is things, they can be in the public consciousness for a period of time and then they fade away. And you go back, you know, there was the anti-Vietnam movement, for example, there was gay rights and women's rights and all of these things that come in the public consciousness. And in many ways, the whaling took the anti-whaling movement took its chance, and and it pushed the Aussies to take court action. New Zealand reluctantly joined in after that, and Japan lost the case. And I, you know, I was blessed to be in the middle of that, that crazy circus. <laughs> you must have had many a moments of chuckling to yourself as well, eh? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> So going on from, you know, once uh, the success of getting you back home um, and back with the family, um, how on earth did you then get away from the family again? Did the missus and the kids not just say, hold on a minute, Dad? Uh, Mm -hmm. Interestingly, before I went to Antarctica, me and my missus split up. And, And I go back to my point earlier. When you get to work on stuff you really believe in, it's very hard to backtrack. And and my, my ex-wife now, Sharon, yeah. she was an amazing lady. Um, but things had kind of changed between us. And one of the good things that happened was was we it was a relatively amicable split up. Mm-hmm. And straight afterwards, I went to Antarctica. So I'm out of action. And Sharon ended up getting herself a boyfriend in the meantime. And so I did you know, would I do three three months in Antarctica and five months in prison? So it was eight months before I saw her again. You know, very often you split with your partner, and then you go back and have a sly one, and then you're back together <laughs> or whatever. So I, I I managed to avoid all, all all that. And when I got back, Sharon was loved up with a new boyfriend, and it, it kind of and and that was that was a good thing. And um, after after that, there's this dilemma: what am I going to do now? Like my my boat was gone. Um, and I was determined to remain involved in marine conservation, but as all conservationists will tell you, how are you going to fund your work? Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's a few ways you can do it. Some people do it part-time where they might have a professional job and then they, they take three months a year and go and do something. Another way is you can get a job for an NGO where they, where they pay you, like Greenpeace, for example. And another way is you, you kind of create a niche for yourself, and that was what I tried to do where – you know, I wanted to to carve out something that that I was in control of. My relationship with Sea Shepherd wasn't always that great. Like I, I did a year with them, but Paul Watson and I didn't really see eye to eye on things. And so I wanted to just go and spread my wings a bit and see what I could do by myself. You know, and yeah. um, I had this idea to do a television show to fund the work. Like Whale Wars, that rated through the roof. And that that episode when I boarded the Shonomaru, that remains today the highest ever rating episode in Animal Planet history. Um, I was like a D-rate celebrity for a day, um, and it, but what it, what it, I remember thinking about it like that's maybe I can do a TV show, and so I went out and I there was a there was a guy in New Zealand who I talked and to give me half a million dollars. He just won lotto, yeah. 
Yeah. He gave me half a million dollars, and I, I flew to New, Namibia with a team of former Black Ops guys, sort of Navy SEALs and Marine Recon type players, and we broke into a De Beers diamond mine where they did where they had seal clubbing. The seal clubbing is unrelated to the diamond mine. It's just that the diamond mine is a very secure facility, and it prevents anyone from getting in there to video or photograph these 100,000 seal pups a year that they go and kill. So we, we got dropped off about a couple of miles offshore, and we had no idea what was there. All, all I had was, was Google Earth, but the area was blurred in the mine. Yeah. So we got dropped off a couple of miles offshore. One of the largest um, great white shark hangouts in the world, like it's got this place is the largest seal rookery in all of Africa. Yeah. And we're swimming through this thing in the middle of the night, dressed like seals. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we got to shore. I had a cameraman with me, actually. He was, he was a South African guy. And we got ashore. We were shitting our pants swimming, <laughs> swimming through that. And then we got caught up, up in this Calpwood stuff. And then we said, so we, we, we get ashore. I've got this guy, Jack, who was a New Zealand paratrooper. And we put our gear down and, and we were just getting out of our wetsuits and stuff. Now he does. And, and I look around and he's a jackal who's grabbed my cameraman's pack and it's starting to drag his pack off. And he had some, he had some, um, Biltong in his pack. I think the jackal could smell that. <laughs> so anyway, he, he goes to grab the pack off the jackal, and this jackal goes, ah! <laughs> like this at him. And he's like, he's like, bugger this man, you don't you don't pay me enough for this. And he, he, <laughs> he, he, he got on the radio and we called up Larry. I saw him as Zodiac waiting a couple of miles offshore in case there were guards waiting. <laughs> we call up Larry and this guy swims back through this shark infested water back out to the Zodiac. And so anyway, over the next four days. Jack and I spent these spend our days sort of dodging patrols and trying to figure out where the seal clubbing was happening. And and amazingly, on the last day, basically out of water and out of food, and these these seal clubbers came to within about two hundred meters of where we where we were sitting. Mm. And as they're coming in, I was like, you know, man, this this is your chance. Don't don't miss it. But you don't want to get caught. Like Africa has a long history of shooting people in diamond mines, so yeah, you don't want to get caught there. So. Yeah, and so I had, I had Jack. I put him up on a high point to guide me, and then and then I had a, one of those sniper ghillie suit things on. And I'm crawling, crawling <laughs> over these rocks and getting as close as I can. And 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 because my cameraman had gone, I was having to do the filming and, and everything. And I had it was one of, it was a Canon 5D Mark III. It's quite a nice camera, but I, you know, I'm sitting there adjusting it. And 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 eventually there, the 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 thing just suddenly came into focus. I had a 400 mil lens with a two times that. So suddenly there's like this bang. Here's these seal clubbers looking straight at me. <laughs> and uh, and I witnessed one of the most horrific things I've ever seen, mate. Like like they, I don't know how many seals that club, maybe maybe three or four hundred. And it was a horrible, horrible thing to witness. And, you know, I remember thinking, you know, I'm tempted to go running down there and smack a couple of them. And, you know, oh, of course, you I've, been, I've been a fool if I had done that. I'd probably still be in prison now. Yeah. Um, so well, anyway, I, we, I actually... we got this amazing. Sorry, go on. We ended up with this pretty extraordinary bit of footage. And we, we cut an episode of television out of it. And um, we tried selling it to the networks. And they, they didn't, they liked the show, but they were worried about the risk. If you get commissioned by a network, they, they take on that risk. Um, and then eventually I talked I talk to a guy into New Zealand who just won a lot and gave me half a million dollars. I had a court case against Sea Shepherd where I had another half a million. Mm. Went to Costa Rica and blew it all, <laughs> blew it all filming a television show. But, and, but that kind of kept me going for a couple more years. Um, sold it to Pivot and 
it got sold onto Discovery and RTL and a bunch of networks. I think I think it aired in about ninety countries. Mm. Um, some countries it did really well. We got it on the national broadcaster in Germany and in Italy, but in some other countries it was on some some military channel at three in the morning. You know, <laughs> yeah. um, and then so that kept me going for a couple of years. We we managed to talk Pivot, who was our US partner, into doing a second season, uh, and that we went and filmed in Asia. And so the premise of the show is I would take former military guys, and we would do what we considered hard targets in conservation. And we busted quite a few illegal logging operations, closed down two illegal gold mining operations. We're the first ones to put pangolin on the map. So pangolin is this kind of a hybrid animal, like the part reptilian, they've got scales like a reptile, mm. and the mammalian, and they've got breasts and they give birth to live young that breastfeed. Um, and it's, it, it's the most smuggled mammal in the world, and no one had really heard of it. And we came across this wildlife smuggling ring um, that was smuggling these poor little guys to China, and we we put a put an operation in place. It took us took us about six weeks to, for that to come to fruition. So we closed in that wildlife smuggling ring. There was another one that was smuggling forest turtles. Closed oh, them oh, down, the, the, and the pangolin. What what do they use the pangolin for? Not it's not just for food. So is the it? scales the scales are used in traditional medicines to help women that are having problems lactating. So they the scales are dried and come in a powder, I believe. And the meat is a delicacy, which is is used in you know food in China sort of thing. Yeah. Um, it's interesting as a as a conservationist, the, the planet does pay a heavy price for China. Like they, when I look at all of the missions, in, in total we filmed, I think eighteen different episodes, and of those, over half of them, the the product that was being smuggled or taken legally was going back to China. Mm. Um, you know, the, the, the planet is in, is in dire straits, mate. And, you know, as, even as, you know, you're a diver, mm. you went to some of those places you dive in, you went there 50 years ago and compare it now. I'm not suggesting you're 50 but, years, mate, but, yeah. um, mate, just, you know, in, the, just a the, six, seven year span, you notice a big difference in locations. Mm, it's it's mm. mental, absolutely mental. Yeah. So anyway, that was, uh, so we, that, the, the TV show kept me going for about six or seven years, I think. And uh, and then more recently, uh, our US network closed down and that left me at the dilemma. Where are you going to get your money from now with you? Um, and at the time, I had a guy who was wanting me to get involved in fisheries and he, he offered to effectively buy a boat for me. Okay. And that's, that's the current boat I'm on now is, is the, the Modoc, a former US Navy ship. And then I had a, a, the CEO of Shiva, which make military drones. Um, he invited me to his, his lakefront property in Austria um, a couple of years ago. And, it, and I didn't really know where it was leading. Like I knew about his drones, but I didn't sort of, you know, realize the significance of it. And at the end of the weekend, he basically said, look, if you, if you, if you can get a ship that can land this drone, I'll give you one of these beasts and I'll train you and everything. I saw that. That was a few years ago now, and it's, it's, it's oh, a, I tell you, mate, this is a man's drone, eh? Like it's, it's a taken, massive thing, isn't it? My, my engine, yeah, it's, it weighs a couple couple hundred kilos as a as a, <laughs> as a full takeoff weight. Um, you can fly it three or four hundred kilometers. You can have live video two hundred kilometers away. So, for example, I'm sitting here in Little Harbour in Golfito. I can I can fly this two hundred k's up the coastline, and um, so it's a it's a game changer in terms of uh, in terms of conservation. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, I, I'm sort of finding that now. Like historically, for you to protect national parks, you went and hired some boys out of the pub, gave them a couple of guns, and and send them off in the jungle, or you put them in a little boat and tell them to go and patrol an area. And and 
for a period of time that kind of worked. But today, the resources that, that illegal fishermen and hunters and miners have is, is quite significant. And, mm. you know, they're all sitting there talking on telfo- telephones and, um, the, the, you know, the the drivers that are pushing this is quite significant now. There's, you know, I believe there's too many people in the world. That's another issue. Mm. Um, and so there's a, there's a lot of powerful drivers that are pushing conservation to the brink and technology has a role to play. And if I look at what, you know, our work here in Costa Rica, certainly the, the drone is a, is a key part of it. Mm. Um, camera traps, you know, we're helping put a whole bunch of camera traps through the, through the jungle here. Um, using radar to go tracking boats up and down the coastline audio traps. So you, they, there's these, this new technology where they put these acoustic microphones in the jungle and they, they can pick up noises up to about three or four k's away. And whereas the camera trap is just, it shows you something moving past this point. Whereas these acoustic traps, someone uses a chainsaw, drives a vehicle, starts a pump or a generator or something within say three or four k's, you'll hear it. So the two in many ways complement each other. Okay. Um, and you know certainly you know drones can be a game changer in jungle lots and and offshore. So you're seeing this transition at the moment in conservation from being largely focused on boots on the ground or, or men on the water to being technology first. And then the idea is you're guiding the rangers. So what what we try to do here is we send the rangers out and you know we go with them when there's a target rather than just walking aimlessly around the jungle. Mm. We want to know there's someone in this part of the jungle and send a ranger team specifically there. And then things like we've got Upper, which is our, our anti-poaching dog. He's a Belgian Malinois. Holy cow, mate. These are the these are the elite athletes of the dog world. So we got this only about, about four or five months ago. He's an unbelievable dog. He is a super athlete. Yeah, He's clever. He's got an amazing nose on him. Like his ability to, to sniff stuff out is quite extraordinary. Um, and so he's been trained to track people in the jungle, and then more recently we're, we're training him to, to hold people, and that's that's another that's a whole can of worms once you start releasing a dog to yeah. go grabbing people. But you know, a big problem we've had here in the past, especially illegal gold miners, often will come across an illegal mine operation, and you might catch one or two guys, but often there's what we call a squirt, someone disappearing <laughs> out the side. Um, but if they see if the if the miners see a dog. They're much more inclined to give up. Like like a dog puts an element of question in a miner's mind. Like like you know you're not going to outrun it. Yeah. You're less likely to pull a knife or a machete or you know even a, a gun for example. And so, you know things like that. We we we're trying to sort of empower the rangers here and and make them smarter in the way they work and and give them a better chance of success. And um, you know, very very lucky to be you know following this down down this lonely track. So do you um. Do you get a bit of difficulty with the within the teams at all? Because I mean, I mean, thinking back to the the TV program and going on what you're doing now, there's obviously men who you know are military style men and um, testosterone up to the max, and then you add into it maybe yeah. personal emotion about the animals that you're protecting. Have you had any kind of issues with having to rein in, rein the guys in at all? Let me let you in on a secret. I, in fact, I've given up on. Well, I haven't given up on them, but I don't really take the military guys anymore. There, there might be the odd guy who have here, but it's more incidental. I don't need to be running around the jungle with guns. Yeah. You know, the rangers are. You know, those guys are well equipped, and sometimes I've been involved in training them a little bit. Um, but I, I prefer to sort of provide this the surveillance and and a sort of backup and. You know, I, I try and provide a professional service here where we provide surveillance and, and manpower and other things. And one of the things I found, I, you know, in the, 
with my television show, I hired former spec ops guys, so Navy SEALs, SAS type lads. Mm. Most of them have a few issues going on, and it's like a double-edged sword. Like you, especially the Americans, like you, you a <laughs> SEAL Team 6 or a SEAL Team 2 guy, they have done a lot of serious stuff, and they pay a heavy price for it. Yeah. And PTSD is rampant through those guys. And the stories I could tell you, I probably won't. You know, the, the guys are very loyal to me and served me well in, in mm. the unit here when we were filming the show. But they pay a heavy price for this stuff, and often it manifests itself in, in you know, ang- angry outbursts and, and things like that. And mm. so, you know, our, our show, we, you know, I didn't want to ever show my boys in a, in a poor light. And so we we largely left that out of the show. But mm. trust me, there was some there were some tough days of dealing with some people with some serious issues. Highly skilled guys. Yeah. Um, here's, here's something that happens often. Those guys that you know you're in, let's say you're in a SEAL team unit or or a Marine recon. Like you're a serious hardcore guy that is often told you're the best. You, you know you're indoctrinated into this unit, and you've got there's a very strong team ethos and and in those teams like like you you at times depend on your life on this guy next to you mm. and vice versa you take those guys out of there the next thing that you know they're, they're back in, in charlotte or north carolina or seattle or wherever and they they've now lost that support network and in terms of job if they're an officer they've got plenty of options but if, you, if you're a grunt in a in a seal team unit were you going to become a personal trainer or, or go and do close body protection of some Russian squillionaire? Like those are not the most appealing jobs when you've been an elite soldier and you come out and you're not valued so much and a lot of them struggle with that. Yeah. Um, yeah and I was sort of, you know, in some ways I, I gave those boys another avenue for, you know, a very tight-knit team and, and a, um, you know, somewhere where I, I can use your skills. Mm. Um, you know, the skills to go to go killing people are not that useful in everyday life. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of them, a lot of them kind of struggle with that. And I've, I've got a great deal of sympathy for military people who, who spend a serious amount of time in difficult situations. They pay heavy price for it. And, um, yeah. 100% agree. I've got quite a lot of friends that are, uh, that have, have suffered over the years. So uh, hats off to them all. Oh, um, so anyway, what, what was the question? I forgot. <laughs> I was like, oh, do we have any you, on the side? You, know, oh, you never got in between any now? kind of problems going on. <laughs> you just stood out the way. Yeah, there was. <laughs> I tell you, mate, one of the things I used to do was we would, um, we, I'd always try and keep keep my lad super fit. And one of the things, for example, here in, in Costa Rica, where we work the rangers, the rangers are like mountain goats, and especially the ones who've been doing it for years. Like mm. they are, that's the wiry. And they're super fast up the hills. Like often you find big guys. I, I was embarrassed at times. A couple, a couple of my guys, big muscly buffheads, shit in the jungle, <laughs> useless in the jungle, and they're just carrying too much muscle around. And here's these little wee mountain guys just scaling up the side of these things. So anyway, I'd, I would always try and keep my boys super fit. And one, one of the avenues I had was I would sort of match them up for sort of. I had a couple of jiu-jitsu guys, and and so we started training doing doing jiu-jitsu. So you weren't allowed to strike the other guy, but it was sort of wrestling, jiu-jitsu, judo, mm. all that kind of carry-on. And, and, mate, you put a couple of boys for 10 minutes, and there's a couple of tap-outs. And, and anyway, I, I mistakenly, I had a couple of lads that weren't seeing eye to eye on a few things. And <laughs> anyway, so I matched these two up. Let's just say it ended in a few in a few. <laughs> A few tears. Um, so I regretted that. So I, after that, I kind of avoided that. I was a bit more careful who I went 
matching up against each other. So, um, <laughs> but these these days with with their work in Costa Rica, I take volunteers from pretty much anywhere. So my volunteers pay to come here. I pay about they pay three grand to be here for three months, mm. and as long as they've got a good attitude and and are competent, um, you know, I've got I've got a couple of kids on the boat. I've got one guy here who's twenty years old. Mm-hmm. He's done a year of uni or whatever, and he decided to head out and do something. And normally they're useless to start with. Like take someone who's twenty; they don't have much in the way of skills. But I put them on here for a month, and as long as they're hard working and they have what I call competence, I can normally get a lot of value out of them. And they walk often; they walk away quite different people. Mm. Um, and the boat, you, you know, you're in the deep end here. Like it's you know, it's not like it. You know, you're doing a you're doing a, an apprentice trade certificate at, at a polytech or something like here, you know, day three, you're driving the Zodiac and two weeks later, you're driving a rib, but then you're running this 10 ton crane and then you're having to grind the four deck. And I was this kid the other day, he was, he was using a, he'd never used a grinder before. And I assumed he had, I mistakenly <laughs> sent him up to the bow and start grinding. And then 10 minutes later, he's, he comes back and he's, he's cut into his finger under the bone Oi. with this grinder. So anyway, it was good training. So then I, I got my stitching kit out. I've done a bit of stitching in my day. So I, so I gave everyone a lesson on how to stitch stitch up. And so a couple of boys, we only need a lot, four or five stitches. So we all got got down and I showed the boys how to do the first one and then talked through them through how to do stitching. So they all got to go and do a <laughs> stitch together. So, so it was um, that was good good training for the lads. But I, I sort of I like to put people in the deep end a little bit, not necessarily injure themselves, but and and sometimes some people sink and. Some some swim really well, and you know it's one of the great things about my my gig now. I do get to change some people's lives, not all, and some walk away a little bit disappointed and disheartened. But mm. but I I like the glint in young people's eyes. who want to make the world a better place, and who who don't mind being in a boat getting beaten up all night, you know, bashing around out in some waves and getting soaked wet. You know, they it's it's neat to see people evolve like that. And that's his. He's going to have that top point for the rest of his life. He's never going to forget it. Yeah, well, it's funny. I've been I've been having volunteers for man. I started first started two thousand six. So was that sixteen years? Fifteen, sixteen years. So I've I've been running volunteers for a long time. It took me a while to figure out how to get the best out of them. And there's an exchange that goes on. So here, volunteers they they might give me three grand to come here for three months. They walk away with some hopefully some experiences they wouldn't otherwise get. Like we go to the remotest parts of the jungle here. We we go you know heading out. Cocos Island shortly. We go to some of the world's most iconic places. So they get some experiences they wouldn't have otherwise. Mm. They pick up some skills that, that normally might take them years to, to go getting. You know, and here you you get pushed a lot from day one. And so a lot of them do walk away with different skills. But the, the best thing they walk away with, I call it problem solving. And in life, you know, people who are effective at doing stuff, they're good problem solvers. Mm. Just about anything we want to try and do, you're solving problems. But a lot of people you know, they, they struggle getting a flat and they struggle, you know, with, with things that some people might consider quite basic. So on here, I, I encourage all my people, you need to solve problems. So don't bring me problems. You need to solve problems. And and every time you go solving a problem, it's a job off my entry sort of thing. Um, and I've had some some super awesome people who have come into the ship and they walked away quite different people. Um, and, you know, it's a, you're in a, lucky position to be able to see that and you know, a lot of them still keep in touch 
every now and then I go hit them up for a few bucks to help me on the next operations ruling. <laughs> you still owe me for when I taught you how to grind concrete. <laughs> Do you know that time I put five stitches in here? I didn't give you the bill. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. So what, what's the what's the plan, Pete? Because you uh, from Costa Rica, are you are you mainly staying within Costa Rica, or are you doing? We're here. We're, we're in Costa Rica probably till about Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, our, our agreement with the government was for one year, uh, and that expires in August. But the, the new minister who's come in are talking about um, extending that out till uh, till next year. But I, my feeling is I, by Christmas. Um, we'll probably be doing the same kind of thing. And hopefully by then we've largely sorted out the fisheries here and, and got the National Park Marine Reserves all, all tidied up. Um, and, you know, the idea is that we train up the rangers, encourage them to get their own tracking dog, and then we'll be moving on most probably. Um, there's a couple of interesting first One is, um, is uh, Galapagos and Ecuador. They've, they've got serious issues with the Chinese boats over there at the moment. Interestingly, the Chinese are coming into Costa Rican waters as well. Or well, there's some recent intel we got from a from a source here was saying that the Chinese are coming into Costa Rican water, so we might be taking a look at that at some stage. Mm. Um, there's uh, and then also Isla de Mapeo has a similar problem with foreign boats fishing illegally. There, that's part of Colombia, one of the top ten dive sites in the world, I believe. Yeah. So one of the great things about my gig, I have been not sure to how many, but certainly at least half a dozen of the world's greatest dive sites over the years, and I'm not really a not really a scuba dive, like a, maybe four or five hundred in total. Half of them have been cleaning boat holes. <laughs> um, but I dive, I dive, for example, Minerva Reef, dive Palau, Cocos Island, yeah. um, and uh, I dive Chuk or Truck Lagoon. That was amazing. All the rest. Um, yeah, and and I, it's funny you go and dive a few of those places. And so here in Costa Rica on the. We went to dive Kanyo Island the other day, which on the mainland is the, is the best dive site they have. When you've done Cocos Island, mate, <laughs> Kanyo's, meh, it's okay. Um, so I put a little dive gear on that. Interestingly, I trained a few years back. We did a mission here. There was a there was a problem with um, – there were shark finning boats. At the time, we we, we got some intel about, about half a dozen boats that were supposedly shark finning illegally. And we tried getting into the port. This is in a port called Punta Arenas, which is a dodgy little town, mate. One of the dodgiest towns I've been in. Eh? I better watch what I say here because I'm in Costa Rica Arenas. again. <laughs> That's, um, is, that so anyway, Ar- is that Argentina? We, we, went into, we went into Punta Arenas to, to try and put some turtle trackers up on the masties of these boats, and it was pretty well guarded. And there was dogs everywhere. And so in the end, we, we couldn't get in by land. So I thought, we'll just – We'll sneak in by water. So we went and I had a company, OMG in Italy, who make military rebreathers. Yeah. These are oxygen-only rebreathers. So anyway, they, they, they gave us a couple of these rebreathers. They had a German guy come and train us. So we, we were training out at Kanyo Island on these on these oxygen rebreathers. Quite a techie bit of kid, actually. Like, you kind of got to know your stuff to use them. Anyway, we managed to we managed to bumble our way through that. And next thing, so, so at like 2 in the morning, with, with very early versions of those underwater DPVs, they are hard to use at night, I tell you. It's <laughs> going in this water. Pitch black water, like the water in Punta Reynas is very estuarine. Full of, there's lots of crocodiles. There's a mangrove sort of two or three k's upstream with, with big crocs in it. <laughs> so I'm, I'm back shooting my pants with my, with my mate going in on the DPVs. Went underneath the wharf, 
climbed out of these rebreathers, and then we we clambered up onto the onto the onto these the two boats, which are the sort of on the outside. They would often they would stack two or three of them wide on a on a given dock. Yeah. So I'd pick the outside one and I'd climb up on top. And on one of them, the second one, there's this dog barking like the dog could smell me, but he was he was on the on the wharf and this dog barking away. And anyway, we got we got these two tre- turtle trackers on there, right? So then we we got got back under the wharf, put it, put these rebreathers on, snuck out of there. And so what we were doing, we were using this as a way to figure out where are these boats shark finning. So we every so the next couple of days would every couple of hours I'd log onto the site, see where our you know, supposedly turtles had gotten to. <laughs> and and on I think it was on day three, both the one left port at six in the morning, the other one left in the next evening. And they start heading offshore. I'm like, where are they going? Like shark finning is a coastal thing. Like they don't really catch sharks and in oceanic conditions. So where are they going? And the next day I come out, they're heading to Cocos Island, all the way to Cocos Island. And so that was that really put in play another another crazy mission. So now we knew there was there was shark finning happening at Cocos Island. Yeah. Um we went and got a got a permit to go there. And we didn't have a we didn't have a really a suitable boat. The only boat I had was a I had this a seven seven meter sea legs, which is this these super boats, they've, they've got three wheels. They've got the front wheel coming back down and two on the bottom, and you can drive them up on the beach. <laughs> but they're not really an ocean-going vessel. So this is like 300 nautical miles offshore. And we didn't have enough um, – we couldn't fit all the fuel inside the boat. In fact, I, got, I started putting the fuel on the boat, and then I could see when the boat was starting to get <laughs> – you put too much, too much weight in a boat, you know, you start to have issues of it sinking. So anyway, I, we, we managed to secure from Europe we got flown. It cost us a huge amount, five grand to get this thing. It was a military fuel bladder that you could tow behind the boat. So anyway, we, we start towing this thing. We get halfway out to Cocos, and the fuel bladder gets the leak. So we pull it inside the boat, and we've lost a whole bunch of fuel. And um, so we start we, – now we have to start running this fuel that's got water in it. One of the engines blows up, right? <laughs> and so and, – so now things are starting to get a bit dire. We're still like 100. So we don't have enough fuel to go back to Costa Rica. We have enough maybe to carry on to Cocos Island. So anyway, we, we sort of carry on. So now I'm starting, my, my maths are starting to come. I'm starting every, every couple of hours. I'm redoing my calculations on how much fuel I've got left. So we started this gig with, I think, something like 1,100 litres. We got to Cocos Island with nine spare, <laughs> nine spare in the line. Then it turned into a seventy-two hour voyage and we all ended up with a horrible heat rest. It was quite cold. And we so we had wetsuits on. In fact, I had two wetsuits and we were eating these MREs, these military uh, meals ready to eat sort of thing. It's got a little salt sachet that you put in, generates heat, whatever. And I'd every meal I'd put this down between my two wetsuits to heat up on my chest. <laughs> um, I had one of the guys on my crew was a celiac. He didn't know it at the time, but anyway, he was allergic to gluten. All of these MREs are, are packed with gluten. So this poor guy is, is crumbling in front of me. Um, there was five of us on the boat, of which only myself and one other were capable of driving. The others end up getting really sick. We got caught in, you know, the, the second and third nights, both horrendous, horrendous fronts coming through. And Cocos Island at, at night is always choppy, always choppy. It was a miserable voyage, mate, 72 hours. <laughs> we limped into Cocos Island. I remember jumping off that boat and like, having to be alive. And we, so we spent a couple of days recovering. And then so now we had to we, – we didn't have very good satellite connections, so we didn't really know what was going on with these, 
with these boats. We're only going to ping from those boats about every four hours. These two shark finning boats, and they were they would the pings we did get they were generally hanging out at twelve nautical miles offshore. So we went out the next night, managed it, managed it. So we're now we we can't get our boat up on the plane right without the risk of blowing. Oh, the second engine started having problems as well, right? <laughs> so anyway, we go out chasing these boats. And the first night we we didn't really couldn't really understand what was going on. Second night it suddenly took into place what they were doing. There's about one and a half knots current that slides past Crocus Island. Mm-hmm. What these longliners would do, and there was quite a few of them, like 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 maybe eight or ten of them there, they would drive in in a row and they would sweep sort of past the island like this, dropping their long lines, mm-hmm. and then they'd go and wait outside. So they're only in the marine reserve for a very brief period of time laying the long lines, and then they just sit outside. Oh, yeah, we're just pulling our long lines in. Yeah. And so it was on the second night, which was our last night there. The following day, we had we had to get going. So. Anyway, so they did a run at about maybe seven in the evening. And so at the end of the run, I saw where they went, oh, what's going on? They picked their lines up and then right on daybreak, they went and did a second run. And we came in and all we had to do was video video them inside the Marine Reserve to bust them. Big. And uh, so we ended up, we caught seven of them. And the last guy, so the first boat we busted, suddenly they're all on the radio. And you see billows of smoke as all these boats start <laughs> scattering everywhere. And uh, we ended up the last guy. We got him just with a, about one mile uh, still inside the Marine Reserve. So we caught seven boats in one night, which was, which was pretty cool. Uh, and that remains to me one one of my one of my uh, most memorable missions. Like it was really hard, and it, and it, you know it pushed what a pretty tough guys, you know, almost to the edge of breaking point. And in the end, we managed to catch seven boats. You know, it was worth um, it in the end, eh? Yeah, yeah, and you know, made made a good episode of television. Um, <laughs> television's been an interesting thing. Like the, you know, often I've sort of got a saying: we're all sort of prostitutes in our own way. And television, in some ways, sort of I had to prostitute myself a bit. Like there were some missions that I wanted to do mm. that there was um, there was the television had no interest in it. You know, for television, they want a really strong arc or storyline. Yeah, and people love animals. And for example, there was there was a big trade in the in these these um, a type of tree out of Africa that was being exported to the states and China and everywhere. And uh, the networks were like, "What's the tree nonsense? We don't want to. We don't care about some little tree that's being stolen. Um, you know, we want we want pangolin and penguins and yeah. fluffy animals sort of thing. And so you know, the, so in some ways, I didn't do all the missions that I wanted, but that we did manage to highlight some 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 issues that I thought were really important and we certainly saved closed down some quite a few wildlife smuggling rings or people doing naughty stuff and been a I been a crazy ride, mate. Well I think it's fair crazy to say you've saved a lot of animals and you've pissed a lot of people off, which is great. <laughs> yeah, pissed a lot of people off and, and you know, made a lot of people quite happy too. Yeah. You know, I sometimes in my gig it's easy to you know, I've had a few death threats and that over the years and, and I had one guy. He was Australian, actually. He was um, he when me and Sea Shepherd, we kind of Paul Watson and I didn't see eye to eye on a few things, and so when I split from Sea Shepherd, there was a bit of angst floating around. Yeah. And this guy, he sent me a message on Facebook, and he said, he said, but you're in there's there's nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. I'm coming to get you. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so I replied to him. I said, I, I said, here's my address. Bring your A game, pal. <laughs> and then I posted it on my wall. And so then it was, you know, it was like World War Three opening up with all my homies getting stuck into him. And it was, he ended up closing closing his page down in the end. Um, but you know, it, it, look, 
when you're involved in conservation, you, you do piss a few people off. And, yeah. Um, and, you know, but a lot of people, you know, I think increasingly conservation is becoming accepted, um, especially amongst younger people. Sort of old people, I think, you, when you're, you know, people who are maybe 70 or 80 these days, they, they sort of were raised when conservation and environment wasn't an issue at school when, you know, you cared about, about communism and interest rates and security and things like that. Mm. You know, those, those days have changed. And now you take a kid of 20, the bulk of them do have a, a really good sense of, of the environment and our place in it. And it's one of the reasons I'm optimistic about the future. I think there's so many people coming through who do give a shit about the planet and who want to make it a better place. And we just got to get all these old people out of the way. Old people like me, mate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, steady on, steady on. I'm in your age bracket. I'm not old yet. <laughs> <laughs> so where's it all? Where's it all leading to, Pete? Um, we've got. I saw on the website you've got um, that sexy looking boat, Earth Race Two. Um, yeah, that's my long game. So yeah. I had one of the one of the great things about Earth Race. It was an extraordinary boat. So I. This will test your geography. So we, we started off in Portugal, crossed the Atlantic, through the Panama Canal, all the way across the Pacific to Australia, down the coast of Australia as far as Hobart and over to Auckland. We did all of that on one tank of fuel. Bloody hell. That tri-hull, wave-piercing hull form is extremely efficient. And, and you know, it's not just a hull form. It's also you've got to, you know, the right propellers and drive training, gear, gearbox and everything. And, and the... The boat was amazing for opening people's eyes. And, and you know, you couldn't walk in and look at that boat and, and not think, holy shit, that is cool. Like the, mm. the, the boat had a real presence about it. And it was, it was really easy to make stuff happen when I had that boat. When I look at what I'm doing now, this ship is not ideal. Like, it's slow. Like, yeah. you know, I, <laughs> we, I had, the other day we, we had two engines running and we hit 10 knots. It was a woo! Double figures, um, <laughs> and so there's 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 certainly big some boats that get away from us these days that we're only we whatever reason we can't get them in the rib might be too rough or might be too far away to start with. So a lot of my offshore stuff, this boat's very limited. Also, the flight deck is not perfect, and and uh, so my long game is I want to build a, a trihull wave piece about sixty meters long. The designers, I don't know if you know how boats are measured and stuff. So the they they have. So they have the official length of a boat. Yeah. It's a complex co calculation, and it's not from the stern to the bow. It's roughly from sort of the stern, but the bow is 80% of the height of the main deck level. So by being creative, you can make, build a 60-meter boat that's classed as a 45-meter. And that matters when, for example, for you to take any boat over 45 meters into a marine reserve, you need a special permit. Gotcha. Uh, for you to come into port, you need a pilot on the boat. There's, if you go over 45 metres, it's so much more restricted. So I want to have a boat that's 44.9. So I'm going to have a 60-metre-long <laughs> boat that is only 44.9 official length. The other one that, that's quite quite curious is the way they measure the weight of boats. So they have what's called the gross registered tonnage. It is based amazingly when Britain used to transport coal and it's effectively how much coal could you fit inside this ship, and it's a tonnage of really? coal. But there's certain areas get excluded. So they exclude, for example, the um, uh, the engine room, and if a, a part of the ship has a removable section, it's classed as non-permanent. So a lot of boats, what they do is they go putting a, a, a section of wall that can be removed, 
and therefore that doesn't get counted in your gross tonnage. So the idea with this is you keep your boat under 500 gross registered tons. Anyway, this Earth Race 2 is going to be 44.9 registered length, 490 gross registered tons, <laughs> uh, and it is going to be an engineering marvel. Mm. Um, there's the smallest year, $15 million. Kind of one of my plan is, I'm trying to prove myself and what I do here, and I'll, I'll keep doing this gig for another couple of years. Sooner or later, a big hitter is going to look at our work and say, I'm going to back that guy and write him a check for $15 million. Mm. Uh, That is my long game, and that vote will keep me going until I retire. I'm going to pop back to New Zealand, get myself a little mobility scooter, soup it up a little bit. <laughs> Come and join me, mate. Zip down the zip <laughs> down the pool. A few years away, you know. I think. <laughs> <laughs> mate, I, could, I, hey, John, I, I, thought, I need a mobility. Retirement, mate. I could. I couldn't think of anything worse than retiring. To be honest, yeah. um, I need a mobility. I'm not going to jungle so much. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> look, look, on bloody crutches. I managed to. Oh my god! What yeah. happened to you? I managed to snap my hamstring in two places. Uh, what oh. ten days ago? So, in um, two places, yeah. You must have been what were you shagging the missus or something? Oh <laughs> uh, no, unfortunately, um, skateboarding. Skateboarding. <laughs> there you go. Were you a skateboarder when you were a kid, and you yeah. were sort of reliving your youth, and yeah. you were trying to do a aerial lip slide or something? Were you? <laughs> I was actually. I'd had a, a great couple of runs, and I was literally just stepping off the board. And the when I was a kid, bit. we had a. Um, I was, a, I was a skateboarder when I was a kid, and we um, we built a, a ramp, and we had a driveway that went through a, a two-car garage, like a two cars end on end, yeah. and then another concrete bit out the back half, and at the bottom of that concrete, so you had a run of about 40 metres downhill, and we, we built this ramp, so we went around the neighbourhood and stole a whole lot of pallets and stuff, <laughs> went and, and talked Dad into getting us a couple of sheets of plywood, so we built this quite cool skateboard ramp, actually. Um, speaking of crutches, I was on crutches a bit earlier this year. Um I uh, I got bitten by a fertilance snake. Oh, oh what, you know snake? about a fertilance? A fertilance, so the the deadliest snake in in all of Central South America. Like they they kill a lot of people. Yeah. There was a ranger here um, a couple of years ago. He got bitten by one of these. He was dead in ten minutes. Um, oh. Anyway, we were doing a patrol up in Pedras Blancas National Park. It was more of a recon actually. We were often if we're going to operate in an area, we go in initially just with a small team of two or three. And we just see what sign there is of, of people. Was there any signs of logs being dragged out? Any sign of dogs, which is normally a sign of hunting sort of thing. So anyway, it was just a recon to see what activity is going on. Mm. And we were often in the jungle here. It's The easiest way to travel is, is either up a creek bed uh, or a watercourse or on a ridge line. It's very difficult to go in the middle. Mm. And uh, anyway, we, we'd worked, worked our way up this creek bed. And then it kind of got as far as we could go easily. So we were having a crossover to this ridge line and we were just going over some some leaf litter and stuff. And then next thing, I felt this bang in the back of my calf. And I thought someone had hit me initially. Like it was it was quite serious. Like it hit me with a baton or something. And bang. And I sort of turned around and here's this, here's this snake sort of rearing back. And the third line, so I... I've seen about a dozen of these here. And when you see them, the rangers, they are all like, do not go near that, that guy. Yeah. And so I knew it was a fertilizer. I, was, I thought it was a dead man, eh? I thought it was a dead man. Like we, we had already been hiking for a couple of hours to get up to where we were. Uh -huh. And, you know, knowing about how many rangers and stuff have been killed with these things. And 
and I remember saying to the boys, look, this could be my numbers up, eh? Um, and it was a pretty tough day, and we <laughs> I had this Alvaro, this Spanish guy, he's an engineer, he put me over his shoulder, and he starts hiking down, next thing he stumbles over, and my leg was throbbing, like, like so initially the pain was just around the bite, mm. but every little bump, the leg started to really, really hurt, and Eventually, after about 10 minutes of this getting beaten up, and I was burning so much energy clinging on to him, mm. and, I, and I knew my chances of survival was one of the things is you, you, you want to burn as little energy as possible. And so and I said, put me down, mate. So he put me down, and I, so <laughs> I tried cooling on my belly. That didn't, didn't work so well. So I sat on my ass, and I basically, I sort of had my left leg out, yeah. and then I sort of used this leg, and I'd sort of shuffle on my ass down this creek bed. So, I, and oh, that was the thing. We had two two routes out. One was follow this this ridge line all the way around, and that would have taken probably four or five hours. Mm. Um, or we go vertical down down this down this damn creek bed. So anyway, it's a vertical it is, and and uh, so anyway, I'm shinning down these these slopes on my bum, and occasionally the boys having to catch me, and I send Alvaro ahead to go and get the coast guard to be waiting for me. And uh, then after about after. Probably about an hour, I started to get heart palpitations, so my heart's going boom, 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 really, really fast. And then, and then about half an hour later, it started to slow down, and all, all I wanted to do was sleep. And I remember it, it, I'd maybe I'd crawl maybe 50 meters, and then I'd sort of curl down and close my eyes for a minute. And one of my lads, Jack, he's like, "Come on, Pete, keep going, keep going." I'd be like, "Piss off, you wanker!" <laughs> Just super tired. Anyway, eventually they got me down to the down to the flat on the bottom, and. And Alvaro managed to come back with a couple of Coast Guard. And so they took turns carrying me on their shoulders on the flat when it, where it was okay. And I remember they, <laughs> they laid me down on, the, on, this, on this gravel on the water's edge where the Coast Guard boat was going to pick me up. And I remember just like, oh, I'm going to sleep. <laughs> and thereafter, I don't, I don't remember much more of that day. I do, remember, I do remember getting into the hospital. And then kind of the next, next few days were a morphine-induced blur sort of thing. And on day three, I, I remember waking up. And uh, looking at my at my leg, and so I've got one leg like this, skinny little leg, and this other one, it's like this. And crazily, I look at it, oh, look at that. That's a muscly-looking leg, isn't it? <laughs> I didn't realize this thing. I was, I was close to losing my leg. Like the they, they were about to transfer me to another hospital. So what they do with a snake bite, so um, this may be interesting for some of your listeners, I don't know. They, so the antidote, the way they, the way they make antidote is they – inject horses with a small amount of venom and the horse goes generating something in its immune system that it uses to, to go attacking the, the venom. So you get this complex concoction of stuff out of a horse mm. that is being injected in you. You're also being given antibiotics and you're being given high amounts of painkiller. And there's a, there's a lot of pain from this, mate, just around that. Yeah, and so what happens is your liver and kidneys start to get overloaded. And so they're monitoring your monitoring your, your vitals and when they start to see your liver and kidney going down the you know there's too much stuff going in there and you know they start cutting back on certain things anyway the doctors put on me 15 ampules so oh so when they start administering the the antivenom they wait to see that the swelling stops so once you've been given enough normally the, the swelling will stop and so as they're administering it they start off they put like three or four in and then another one and another one and my leg just kept growing and growing and growing and and like it was I, I in terms of in terms of girth like probably at least double the size of my other leg um and 
the, the doctor, he said, he said after this, he said, he said, we put the most anti-venom in you that I've ever seen, 15 ampules. Um, and he, then, then what happens is you, so then they had to, they had to cut back on the antibiotics um, because my liver and kidney were starting to, starting to fail. Mm. And then I ended up problems with my bladder and it was all getting awfully complicated. And the leg got so big, they were going to, they were going to send me off to um, Suidad Nally, which is another hospital where they were going to basically open the leg up. So it was so swollen that the blood flow was getting all restricted and, and they worry that you're going to lose the leg. Um, but once they start opening up your leg to relieve the pressure, like there's serious stuff now. Mm. Um, so anyway, this, so I'm the... oblivious to this. I'm, I'm in this morphine and juice tube and I was like, oh, look at that big leg. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, we're, we're thinking of taking you to another hospital to operate on the leg. Oh, there's some good scars out of that, weren't I? <laughs> um, and it wasn't until a few days later when they, they took me off the morphine and put me on uh, tramadol. And then I started to realise what serious mess I was in. How far had the swelling gone then? So you got the bite on the calf. Was the was it the whole it, leg? It that was got swelling? up to got up to my groin, got up to my groin basically. Uh, there was another side effect of the of the anti venom. Mm. My my cock and balls went black, big and black. <laughs> Quite disconcerting. As you know, I called the doctor. I said, I said, is this normal? So, yeah, that's right with that. Oh, the other thing with the anti venom too. It, um, so what your body does. So you, you've got all this toxic shit in your body, and your body's trying to dispose of it in different ways, and and your, your liver and kidneys are starting to struggle, a lot of it, some of it comes out your back. So my back opened up with all these, all these like pustules of stuff. So I was sitting there on a bed, itching away, and, you know, pass me that broom. There was an orderly there who's, who's sort of, his name was Rodolfo. Rodolfo, pass me that broom. <laughs> Sit there. <laughs> scratching your back. Broom, scra- scratching my back, pop, you know, every now and then you manage to get one in the pop. But it was a, it was a sanitary lesson for me, mate. Like, um, yeah, I'd... I, I've kind of looked death in the eye a couple of times, but the snake bite was was a very close call. Um, well, here's, you... something, here's something a bit curious. I, I remember when I first got bitten, I thought I was a dead man. Yeah. And I remember thinking, I'm actually okay with it. You know, like I've I've lived the dream. I've done so much stuff in the last 10 or 12 years of my life. I've, I've packed so much action and life and goodness and you know, wonderful people and adventures into into these ten or fifteen years, mm. and I if if that was my last day, I would have been okay with it. You know, and I'm you know I'm thankful it's not. I'm happy to still be alive and 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 featuring on your show. <laughs> um, but it was a it was a, a an interesting space to be in where mm. if this is my last day. I'm okay with that, and um, you know, yeah, I'm happy to be out the other side. Um, my, but- my daughter afterwards, she uh, she said she said. Dad, you're like a cat with nine lies, but the snake's worth two. You need to be careful. <laughs> she wrote a very she wrote a very poignant um, letter. So my, my daughter has amazing command of language. Like I've mm. I've had two published books. My daughter at fifteen, her command of English was better than mine, and she wrote an article that got published in the New Zealand Herald and a few other publications picked up. And and she basically said what it's like having Pete with you and it's my dad, mm. and um. And that she, there was a few things she she alluded to. One was, you know, I, for example, I don't have a house. I don't have a car. I, I don't sort of subscribe to the way a lot of people live, where you get married, have two kids, get a job, save up for your retirement, do a cruise once a year. 
you know, like I, that doesn't interest me in the slightest. Mm. But it's it's the norm that society has. And when I was in prison in Japan, I remember worrying about the the, the optics for my daughter seeing. You know, they paraded me around like a common criminal. Yeah. Um, and you know, and and being held in a maximum security prison, and and media was often a little bit unfair. Like they sort of painted me up as this extreme crackpot. Like you know, I was. You know, I thought I was one of the good guys in what I was doing and, and trying to save Wales. Um, and anyway, Danielle, Danny, she says in this thing how she got hassled at school about when I got out of prison, you know, that got hassled about me being a deadbeat dad and not having a house or not having a car sort of thing. Um, and she, but she went on to say that, you know, I'm I'm the lucky one. You know, people who really get to work on stuff they truly believe in they are the lucky ones because most people are not in that position. And, you know, I think it, she sort of conceded that in the early days she was embarrassed to have me as her dad. Mm. Um, but now quite proud. I'm not surprised, mate. I'm not surprised at all. You've done some amazing stuff. Been a lucky lad, mate. Very lucky. Yeah. yeah. Uh, ironically, one of my... Um, um, one of my sayings that I've lived by for years is JFDI, just fucking do it. And mm. it runs much mm. akin to what you're talking about there because, you know, materialistic things, I don't I don't give a shit about anymore. I used to, not anymore. Mm. And being able to... I was in that trap. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I worked in the oil industry. I made a shit ton of money. I, I imported a Porsche 911 back to New Zealand. And, <laughs> you know, I sort of had all the trappings. I, I mean, one time I... I uh, I spent thirty thousand US dollars on a weekend ski trip with my brother in Switzerland. How much? And uh, thirty grand. Shit. Thirty grand US dollars. Big fat US dollars. I was earning truckloads. I was earning a quarter of a million US a year. Keep in mind that's thirty years ago. Yeah. Probably coming in the middle these days. Yeah. We we were the highest paid guys on an oil rig, and uh, I, and trust me, mate, I could spend money like a drunken sailor in those days. <laughs> we hired a one time. We had they gave us an, a. a a travel allowance, and it was about thirty grand a year that you could only spend on travel. Um, and so one one time, my, my our year was about up, and I had lost money that I must have spent it. So we hired a Lamborghini Countach in London, and me and my, me and my homie driving around London in this Countach and turning up at, at flash nightclubs and stuff. We're a pair of wankers, mate. Looking <laughs> back at it, <laughs> so you're right, trusses. Yeah. Anyway, I sort of you know. Given up on given up on those days, thankfully. Mm. Yeah, no, and it, right choice. So, what's um, what's your daughter doing now? Is she doing anything with the English, or is she? Uh... She is. Um, she works as she's got a very um, she's got a very strong humanitarian streak about her. Mm. Here's something: she was a she was still at school, and uh, she was going to take. I think it was her, her year after finishing school. She's like, Dad. There's some needy children in the Philippines that need me. I'm going to work in an orphanage, and I need you and mum to go splitting the airfare, thanks. <laughs> well, what? Well, what's this not? I'm going to work in an orphanage. They need my help sort of thing. So next thing, straight out of school, packed her bags, and went and did four or five months working at an orphanage for free in, um, in the Philippines. You know, you want your kids to grow up with, with big hearts. and. Yeah. So Danny, my daughter has an enormous heart on her and uh, she cares very deeply about issues. In some ways, you know, maybe she's a little bit like me in that regard and that she, you know, she, she cares about issues and is determined to, to make a stand on things. She used to, 
she would the, the Chinese embassy, they must have a filing cabinet dedicated to my daughter. She was forever sending them things about pandas and the dog meat trade and all the other things that China does. And and a, and a letter that goes to an embassy becomes an official document and the embassy has to go reporting it to the superior powers. <laughs> There's a filing cabinet and the, and the Chinese embassy in Wellington dedicated to my daughter. I'm sure of that. These days she, she works in uh, – in, so she does um, – sort of human resources management. So she works for a company that helps people sort of find employment and um, she does psych tests and that. She graduated top of her class. She got a master's in psychology. Mm. Um, yeah. Is yeah. She, she you, ana- you want your daughter's to graduate. Psychology, she analysed you then. <laughs> oh, mate, I, I said, come and, have, come and have a go with my lads, mate. There's a field day of, of, of psychology to be had here. <laughs> um, but she, she, in fact, she has helped us a few times. She was doing... I had a few crew that um, she she ran her psych tests on. So they they use these different different, you know, like for example Myers Briggs and these various evaluation tools you can use these days yeah. to try and figure out whether people are, are suited to the role or not. And so she helped us out with a few of those. And um, yeah, and my other daughter, but Danny. So so she's got I think the, the passionate side of things and caring about things, but. Do not put her in a in a boat that doesn't have a hot shower, for example, or that, that's going to end in tears. Whereas my other daughter, she is so resilient. Like they're traveling around Vietnam on about five dollars a day. Mm. Vietnam went into lockdown, right? So this is I don't know if you heard. There's this thing, Corona, going around. Vietnam locked down early, and all the gringos left. My daughter and her partner about the only white people left in all of Vietnam. So now they're earning top dollar teaching English because there's no there's English no speakers left. left in the country hardly. Yeah, so anyway, <laughs> they, they, they make cream and make and eat some money um, living on $5 a day. And I think their, their plan is that they're going to saving up, they're saving up for a maybe a 35, 40-foot boat to cross the Pacific. And oh, I haven't told them they're crossing the wrong way. If you want to, if you want to go across the Pacific, you're better off doing the Atlantic first and then coming right around. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that's, another, that. that's another story. Mm. Hey, well, if they start travelling through Southeast Asia, hit me up. I've got a lot of contacts. Have you? They can, yeah, they can, they can. There's a lot of stuff off. Be careful what you too. offer, mate. I've, I've people often say to me, you know, if you're in Charlotte, you know, just uh, hit me up when you're, when you're coming through. I'm there the following weekend, mate, knocking on your door. <laughs> Remember that promise? <laughs> mate, well, if you ever come to Sydney, we've got to go for a beer, that's for sure. Mm, I lived in Epping for a few years, actually. Oh, yeah? Um in fact, Australia was where I took up spearfishing. I it wasn't really big in New Zealand. So I was, I was in, I lived in Sydney in, was it about two thousand and two thousand two to two thousand five thereabouts. Mm-hmm. And and one of my mates, he was a spearfisherman over there. I went out with him. I thought, well, this is a good luck. Um, yeah, and I remember. So it was sort of the start of my spearfishing days. I don't do much these days. Mm. Um, too busy saving wildlife, mate. <laughs> busy lad. Yeah. Happy days. Right, mate. I'm. Um, I think we'll wrap it up there. We've we've covered a fair bit of ground, and uh, I don't know about you. I need my breakfast over there. You've got to be. Are you going to head out on patrol tonight yeah, or anything like that? No, we this the entire week we are in harbour, anchored up. I've got the boys doing a bit of maintenance on the boat. Mm. Um, we take turns cooking dinner tonight. We've got Josh cooking. He's actually quite a good cook. Mm. So we've got a couple of cooks that are not the best, <laughs> and. Uh, Often they need a little bit of guide. Are you sure you want to go putting that many chilies in there? <laughs> sort of thing. Um, 
Yeah, so uh, but this week anchored up a week, which is which is nice. It makes a change because the the patrols are relentless. Like last week was was just about all maritime stuff, and yeah. out in a boat till four in the morning, getting beaten up by choppy waves. And here it's just it's in the wet season now, and so it generally it rains starts raining two or three in the evening, mm. two or three in the afternoon. Certainly by five, it's normally raining, and uh, it gets windy, and it is not pleasant being out a boat two in the morning. Getting beaten up by waves, windy, choppy. Uh, I sound like I'm moaning, don't I? You sound like you're getting so, a you know, bit I older, can't, mate. <laughs> yeah, oh, mate, the years are ticking over now. Um, but anyway, so so last week was got beaten up a lot. This week is kind of nice to chill out. And then next week we're back in jungle stuff, which will be good. So our, our dog getting him back in the jungle, which will be cool. Yeah. Um, what's what's the things that and, going uh, on? What's the things that you're heading out for in the jungle? Can you say what you're heading out to the jungle for? Or? Yeah, so, so the... So the thing in the jungle here, so at the moment we're in the south of mm. Costa Rica. The biggest problem they have here is illegal gold mining. So they have these these, these guys go in the jungle and they mine. Normally it's creek beds. Mm. Um, and they so they cause a lot of erosion. Like you get some of the mines here have been have been running them for years. We we caught we caught one guy, man, was it twenty thirteen? Mm. And the guy had been mining this thing. In fact there was a team of three of them. They'd been mining it for three years and the amount of destruction, like like what Previously, there's like this meandering sort of little creek bed with nooks and crannies and lots of wildlife mm-hmm. that was all gone. And and all, all that was left now was just this straight sort of tunnel going down and all the rocks had been piled up on the side. All the trees were gone around the outside. So where previously there was all these trees hanging over, it's all gone. Um, but the worst thing about the mining is they live off the wildlife. So, that, you know, if you're going in there for six months, mm. you might take in some coffee, some pasta, um, some spices, but they're shooting the agouti, the tapir, the peccary, the deer, all, all of the wildlife that would be, for example, prey for a jaguar or a puma, mm. they're eating all of that. And then once that's cleaned out, then they start going further down. Now they're shooting little wee guinea pig things. And and so what happens then, there's a, a double whammy for things like the puma and jaguar. Mm. They start preying on smaller things. They start preying on birds and, and other wildlife that normally they would sort of target. And you get in an area that's had a lot of illegal mining, like there's nothing left. Yeah. And there might be a couple of snakes on the ground as, a, as about it. Even monkeys gone, even monkeys. Um, and so, and you know, it's a serious problem, especially in Corcovado. Corcovado is one of the world's greatest national parks, mm. and it is under siege from illegal mining at the moment. Like there was a, there was a, an analysis that came out about six months ago. Is they, they believe there's somewhere between 100, 150 illegal miners operating in there at the moment, um, and that's hard to catch. Hard yeah. to catch. It's a big jungle. Um, and that's, you know, things like the drone and, and having a tracking dog and that can help us be more effective, you know. Do you ever get, um, thinking outside the box a, bit, a little bit here, but do, do you ever get governments that are just like half arse in it that don't really oh, absolutely. know what's going yeah, on yeah. and don't really yeah. care? Yeah. There's plenty of governments that, that are negligent, mm. I would suggest. Uh, Costa Rica is not one of them. Like their government here is very productive. You know, I can call up the the vice minister or the minister for the environment and mm. have a chat to them if, if we need assistance on something. But many of them, there was a boat quite a few years ago now. I busted one in Liberia. Mm. It, was a, it was a Chinese boat that had been fishing there illegally. And we brought it into port. It was a very difficult takedown. Like the you know, Chinese are quite difficult to go catching in the first place. You try and board their boat and they're smacking you in. And uh, anyway, so we brought this boat in. Following day was gone, and they, they bribed the port captain. Port captain let them go. Bloody hell! Um, you know, and he, you know, like, well, why did I spend the last three months here trying to help you guys? 
Um, and these premier governments like that, often there's, often there's corruption. Um, you know, sometimes when we've done patrols, I've been convinced that word has gotten out to the people we might be targeting. Mm. And, you know, sometimes it's that the corruption might be at a very senior level. Sometimes it might be very low where, you know, one of the, one of the people you're going in with, you know, talks to someone, he talks to someone, and next thing the, the poachers know you're going in sort of thing. Mm. So it's part of the game, you know, and, and you know, operational security is something we, we spend a bit of time thinking about. But when you're dependent on, on a government department and that, you know, you're, you're limited in, in how much scope you can have. That's where having the ship has been good. Mm. For example, last week when we were doing maritime patrols up in Gulf of Dulce, I have the ranges on my ship. We put the, put the boat, so it's out of cell phone range, and... You know, we have a much greater control over things than, you know, if we're, you know, traveling by car and people see the range of vehicle. And on, on land, it's often tricky with, with informants. Like we, we filmed an informant a while ago. We, were, we, we had a German film crew here that were following us around and they, we were working our way up this road. And one of the rangers, he says, oh, that's an informant. So we did a U-turn. Went back and we didn't let him know. We weren't in a ranger vehicle. We just hired a local car. So we, we jumped out. Was from, hey, you know, what do you do? Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> started talking to this guy. And uh, he, he talked quite a lot, actually, until we started talking about illegal gold mining. And then suddenly he gets on a little motorbike and, and headed off. Yeah. Um, but the maritime stuff, it can be a little bit easier like that. And, you know, we're on our own ship and we can move around. We've got a, we've got a Zodiac mill probe. Awesome little boat. I don't know if you know much about Zodiacs, but they yeah. we got given this by Zodiac about and I got given this in 2011. I used it in the Namibia mission. We got that's it in the diamond mine. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, I've, I saw I've, you guys slipping into the water off, offshore. Yeah, that, there's one. So I've had that since 2011, and it is still going. I got a cheap knockoff, a 530. So my, my ZX 4.7 meters, yeah. and I, I bought a 5.3 meter cheap knockoff made in the states. It lasted about six months and fell a bit, <laughs> and yet my four seventy is still going. Yeah, um, you know we've had we've had to do a little bit of work on it over the years. We we just got the the, the keels. I just got them recovered a short time ago, and I got two valves replaced. But they are an amazing little boat. One of the, probably my favourite my favourite boat at the moment. Like, and and that thing is low profile. Oh, we busted a boat the other day. That's right. When we're doing the when we're doing the offshore stuff, we were out. We anchored up at Kanyo Island and. We, we were just chilling out in the afternoon. Like Normally, illegal fishing happens at night. It's, yeah. it's rare that you get anyone in the day, right? And we, we were just sitting there. One of my crews on, comes down. He said, Pete, I think these guys are fishing over here. And so we were only about – we're about a mile from this place called uh, Diablo or, or Devil's Rock. And so we sort of get the bite. He said, he could be. He had def- definitely had outriggers for, for fishing, but he was stationary. So, but I was pretty sure he was stuck over this Devil's Rock, which is quite, quite amazing for fish. And we, we went there a while ago. We went diving. We saw a whale shark, and sometimes they have manta rays there. Um, so anyway, we, we, we get our little wee drone. We fly this out. Sure enough, here the guy's sitting there with some jigs, and he's catching fish. So we, we got on the Zodiac. And uh, the Zodiac, because it's low, you can get really close. A little, I've only got a little wee 40 horse on it, so it's quite covert, and you can often sneak up on these guys. Yeah. And then by the time these guys realised there we were, and there was a bit of chop as well, so we were buried in the chop, mostly keeping our heads down. <laughs> as soon as we pulled up on this guy, suddenly he, he, he starts his motor and a big billow of smoke as he heads off, but we had enough speed. We couldn't have kept up with him if he really got going because it was super choppy, but we got close enough that managed to, managed to clamber aboard. 
and he comes down. He was this fat cat American, million dollar boat. Like yeah. it was sixty five feet long, like a big big boat. Probably had twenty thousand dollars worth of fishing gear on the back deck. Like he had like the latest, most expensive, all super long braids and thousand lures and jigs and all this equipment. And anyway, he's oh. If I'd known as a marine was here, I wouldn't be fishing here. I was like, I was like, yeah, why did you head off as soon as you saw us coming, mate? Yeah. And uh, I, I tell you, it's funny, like, I, you know, a, a lot of the illegal fishing here is a fair chunk of it is, is local people. And often they're just trying to feed their family. And I have a degree of sympathy for them. But you got you come down here in a million dollar boat and you start, you know, fishing in a marine reserve. I've got a serious problem with that. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so I posted them all over my Facebook page. Well, <laughs> he's, he's quite well known in Costa Rica now, apparently. Um, and I'm not sure. I think he's probably going to be prosecuted, but the, the prosecution here, um, it takes a while for it to work its way through. So I'm, I'm not sure what, what's going to happen to him over there. But um, anyway. Right, mate. Um, time for Brecky, I think. Um, thank you so yeah. much for coming on the show and you know on a short notice and you're heading off out to do all the good stuff that you do keep doing what you're doing and i i do hope that people who are listening to this get on to your website have a look through it all and i i bet anyone out there to watch your 17 minute auckland tedx presentation without getting a, a choke in the throat and a tear in the eye good on you mate yeah yeah, thanks, mate. That was, that was a, it's funny with that TED talk. The ducks just lined up, mate. Like, I, you know, I got knifed in Brazil, and a couple of days later, I'm giving a TED talk. And I, I remember leading up to it, um, I didn't. I was kind of cried out. Like, I would. I rehearsed it so many times, mm. and then I, I got cold feet, and I didn't want to go and do it. And and uh, when I walked out, I was worried that the way I'd sort of written it, like TED Talks, you've got to write, yeah, it's scripted. You're not allowed to just get up and freeform it. And um, and I was the last, they'd given me the last slot of the TEDx, given that I, you know, I'd only just arrived back and I needed time to prepare. And I was worried I was going to I was going to muff it, but I got up on the stage and, and my two girls were right in the front row and, mm. and just nailed it, like the best talk I'll ever give, you know. Oh, yeah. And just the fact that so, so soon after being knifed and, and having – having just sort of got back in the country and, and everything was still very raw and visceral for me. And, yeah, very proud of that talk. Yeah. I've watched a lot of TED Talks, dude, and um, I've, I've got to say that's the best one I've ever seen. Well done. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, I appreciate it, eh? Yeah. Uh, to any of the listeners, who there'll be, there'll be the odd one out there that says they want to come and help. There's a couple of things they can do. Is we do take volunteers. Mm-hmm. Um, How do they get in touch with you? And uh, the, the best, just... Track me down on Facebook or go to the website. My, my email and WhatsApp and everything is all over there. So I'm easy, easy to track down, mate. On Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, send me a message, any of those, and I'll, I'll get it. So we certainly take volunteers. Um, they may even like to donate, mm-hmm. go and ship on one of, one of the projects and, uh, and care about the planet. Mm. Care about this lovely planet we've been blessed with. Yeah, yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. And I'll chuck into the mix there as well that, um, you know, Scuba Goat has created a network group on Facebook and it's to maintain a connection between the listeners and the guests that come on the show. Um, Pete's going to be jumping in on that and when he's not in the jungle or swinging from trees or playing commando across the water, then um, I'm sure there'll be some posts going on in there and you can get in touch with him through that as well. Sounds good, mate. I appreciate you having us on the show. Joe, too. It's been, been an absolute pleasure. Ah, my pleasure indeed. Um, dude, let's talk again. 
And thank you Indeed. so much for everything. Any time. All right. Take it easy, brother. See you, mate. Bye, everybody. Bye.